Hello, welcome to this, the latest, uh, latest edition of Too Long Don't Listen, a spin-off of a spin-off. My name's Sean Peterbudge and I'm here as I have been the last four, now five Wednesday evenings, recapping, talking about the book of Boba Fett, season one. Episode five, of course, has been aired. Uh, it is episode five of seven, so only two more to go after this point in time. A longer episode than we've seen in recent weeks as well. And it's fair to say an interesting addition to the season, but maybe not for the reasons that the showrunners would like. Uh, episode five is entitled The Return of the Mandalorian, or Return of the Mandalorian. It is directed by Bryce Dallas Howard who is obviously the daughter of Ron Howard, a successful actor in her own right, transitioning now into a filmmaker slash director. Uh, she's had a go around at a couple of episodes of The Mandalorian itself, and uh, this is her first attempt at uh, directing an episode from the book of Boba Fett. It is, as the rest of the season was, has been written by John Favreau, and the plot of the book of Boba Fett, Chapter 5, or Episode 5, Return of the Mandalorian, is thus... This week's episode plays out very much like a Mandalorian B-side, a kind of season 2.5 sneak peek. Last week's musical cue was not a red herring or a misdirect. It teased Din Djarin, and so he returned straight away, as it happened, just as this episode got underway. He was collecting a bounty, taking on and ultimately taking out a seemingly evil group of criminals using a kind of galactic abattoir as a front for whatever it was they were doing to annoy others and obviously attract Din's uh, bounty. Having collected the man he was after, Mando takes what's left of him to collect what's owed to him, but it's not money that he's after, but information. In fact, he's actually after directions, but to where and to who? It turns out he's looking for surviving members of the Foundlings, the group of Mandalorians shown living in exile on the planet Navarro in The Mandalorian. Only three have survived the battle depicted in Mando, and they have continued to live their lives devoted to the way. In seeking their counsel, it is revealed that he has obtained the Darksaber, a weapon known well to the two Mandalorians currently in his company, one of whom bears the name Vizsla. By way of backstory, Tar Vizsla was a former Mandalorian Jedi, and the man who forged the Darksaber, casting it into both legend and myth. Pre Vizsla was the last of his line, and the last Mandalorian to wield the blade, and with it hold a claim to rule of his people and the planet. Pre Vizsla was depicted during the Clone Wars uh, series, and voiced by none other than Jon Favreau in a cool little twist, so it's obviously understandable why he's got an interest in that. Following a sequence of exposition, important exposition, mind you, the man named Vizsla challenges Mando to a battle for the Darksaber, reasoning it is, it is his family's blade and his birthright. Mando barely survives the skirmish before revealing, under questioning, that he has betrayed Mandalorian doctrine by removing his helmet and he is subsequently cast out of the group. No doubt, to his, uh, no doubt a blow to his little Mandalorian heart, Din makes off into the night and heads to Tatooine, where, just like Boba Fett, he is in need of both a ship and, as luck would have it, a tribe. Now, you'll notice that uh, in that rundown, I didn't once mention Boba Fett, or the Pikes, or anything that this show has spoken about or set up through four episodes to this point. Now... That is concerning, and both sets up what I'm about to say next in a critical way, in a bit of a hypocritical way, to be brutally honest. It's concerning 
in, in, in certain ways, a lot of what the episode is telling us and showing us is quite interesting and quite well done, but how pertinent is it to the story that they should actually be telling? They feel like they're getting a little bit sidetracked, uh, as has been the case in a few of these projects, where what you're showing us isn't in and of itself bad or uninteresting, but it's probably not what you should be telling us about. You're telling us to, you know, clicking your fingers, look over here. No, we want to be looking where we are, you should be telling us that story. So it's, it's, look, it's, it's really interesting, and, and it does, as I say, act as a bit of a gateway to what I'm about to talk to now, and something that I observed and wanted to speak about, obviously, um, in this review episode more as a, the fallout from last week and a slew of kind of you know criticism that emerged online in the aftermath, not just of episode four, but the season you know, uh, in itself. Um, so just with regard to the critical commentary, before we get on to more of the episode itself, I think it sets up what we're going to talk about quite well. Um, I'm not here to say that the Book of Boba Fett has been perfect or it is some high watermark in the history of television because clearly, after tonight, there are justifiable questions to be asked. But I'm firmly of the opinion that you can have any opinion you want, you can hold any position you want, you can be as sensational as you want, but if you want to talk about it, it's really incumbent on you to be compelling and to present your argument in, in compelling fashion. So hold whatever position you want about whatever the TV show, the movie, the band, the music, whatever you want to have. If you, if you want to be contrary about it, if you want to be sensational about it, that is fine, but present a compelling argument. You know, make, us, make me, if I disagree with you on face value, really sit back and consider, what are you saying? Does it have merit? And do I actually potentially agree with some of, if not all of, what you're offering us? So ultimately, when it comes to Boba Fett, Book of Boba Fett, the criticism I can't get over is that this interpretation or presentation of Boba is somehow invalid, that it doesn't make sense. And I'll speak to this in greater detail in just a moment, but some of the critical analysis of late has been really head-scratching. Chris Edwards, uh, is this this man's name, wrote an article that appeared online in The Guardian on 19th of January. And I'll just go some quotes and whatnot through it. I quote, The Book of Boba Fett has resurrected the badass bounty hunter only to destroy everything that once made him so great. What? What does that even mean? What are you talking about? only to destroy everything that made him once great. Quote, In the book of Boba Fett, the once menacing freelancer has become a softie with a heart of gold. He has relinquished his title as a bounty hunter, become so curiously forgiving that he actually set, uh, sorry, becoming so curiously forgiving that he actually set free a Wookiee assassin just moments after he tried to murder him in his sleep. What? The character has openly spoken about wanting to change. The thrust of the show has been entirely built on introducing this character of Boba Fett, a character we actually know nothing about. So prescribing or pre-prescribing attitudes and philosophies and whatnot to this guy who has actually never really shown us anything is a bit of a long bow to draw, is it not? And feeling a sense of betrayal that he's not how he should be. How should he be? Because he, he wasn't really anything to this point. I don't, like, I don't get it. He continues... It all started during an episode of The Mandalorian in which Boba was properly reintroduced to audiences, where he spoke of his fear and disapproval of the Empire, one of his former and frequent clients. Within minutes, he was fighting for the light side for the very first time, having inexplicably been repositioned as a, quote, good guy. He, he was a freelancer. The guy just, you just said as much in that paragraph. He just works for whoever pays him. 
He tracks down bounties. Some of them might be good people. Some of them might be bad people. He's, he's just doing a job to get the... That's He just wants the money. He's a complete freelancer. That doesn't mean he has no agency or, or moral code or compass whatsoever. Because we haven't seen it. We've seen him take down in the movies. We saw him take down one bounty. He was asked to go track down Han, who was established in the earlier movie. Jabba was after, because he dropped his you know shipment, blah, 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 which put Jabba out. We all knew that. Han was then given money to pay off his debt, which he didn't. And then he was on the run from the Empire. The Empire just brought in a group of bounty hunters. Find this guy for us. We want you to find this guy for us. Um, and, you know, obviously not just for Han Solo. And Darth Vader didn't want Han Solo. But it was explained, like, yeah, if you catch him, you can have him because Jabba needs him. You can take him to Jabba. That's fine. But this idea that, oh, he has, he's just been inexplicably repositioned as a good guy. What are you talking about? I don't understand. Like I said, he was a freelancing bounty hunter. He mentioned as much in the show that probably, you know, some of the people he goes after are good people or bad. It's a job, and when you get there, you can probably determine for yourself, which is what he's been doing. Um, he then says, what originally made Boba the most interesting and mysterious character in the franchise was the fact that we knew absolutely nothing about him. Yes, we knew nothing about him for ages, like 20 years. We knew nothing about him. Then we saw him as a kid, and then those adventures and whatnot he faced sort of shaped him a little bit. People change, but in the case of Boba Fett, what's he changing from? We knew nothing about him. He was told no disintegrations, probably because he's fried a guy once, and then everyone just assumes, oh, he must do that all the time. Well, what? There's so many assumptions going on that, oh, he needs to be this way, and because he's not this way, that means it's shit. I just don't get it. You know, he continues, as this Disney Plus series continues to examine his softer side in excruciatingly uninteresting detail, it feels as though the circle of bastardization is almost complete. He was a nothing character. He was a cool costume. Mystique is not a character trait. It's not fulfilling, and it's not interesting beyond a short sugar hit that he looks like an, in- it's an interesting costume. He looks pretty cool. He's a cool-looking action figure. Jeez, he's unusual. Where does he come from? The movie didn't answer any of that. Didn't even suggested any of that. And this idea that the mystique was what made him great and all that stuff, you're going, well, to a point, it made you curious, but don't act as though he walks on the bridge in Empire and then he turns up, obviously, as part of Jabba's crew in Return of the Jedi and it's telling you all oh, this, you know, all the subtext as to who he is and what kind of person he is and what he thinks about this and his relationship with Jabba. And he, no, he's just a bounty hunter, a mercenary. He gets, he's there because it's a gig. He's like a, he's on a retainer. Oh, I just don't get it. This, this fidelity to a character that we actually know nothing about, acting as though there's nothing that interesting that could be said that isn't, but he just kills people. How's that interesting? Ugh. There was another article published by Nathaniel Ecker Mail, and that was on Screen Rant, about how, quote, uh, the series had broken a screenwriting rule and that this act had ruined the story being told and undermined Bobba. Nathaniel writes, This begins in episode one as Fed offers to save a fellow prisoner of the Tuscan Raiders in apparently a selfless act. Firstly, there's no apparently about it. Like, it was a selfless act. But once again, there's no weird subtext there. He was being selfless. Like, I don't get it. He continues... Episode 1 immediately demonstrated that Fett is an inherently good man when he offers to cut the bindings of his fellow prisoner. 
had this detail been removed and had FET, uh, had this detail been removed and FET was instead presented as far more individualist, I think that means individual, individualistic, uh, individualist and selfish throughout his episode, his eventual character growth would have felt far more organic and earned. Again, what? He was offering to save a fellow prisoner from a tribe of what he believed to be savages. So his reading of the situation as he is captured is that these people are going to kill me. When he gets the chance to escape, they have another prisoner. He offers to save that other prisoner from the tribe of beings he thinks are ruthless, brutal savages. How is it more interesting if he just flees into the night and goes, fuck you, and then just runs off? He gets out and he looks at this guy and goes, my fate is going to be his, his fate is going to be mine. I've escaped, Do do you want me to save you? I'll save you. That's somehow bad. Or it should have been saved for later. Uh, I don't get it. Like, the change that comes is earned in that the Tuscans and Bobber develop a mutual respect for one another. You know, don't judge a book by its cover. Initially, they don't trust each other, but then, you know, because they see each other as a threat to one another. Nathaniel goes on. Unfortunately, the talk of his time with the Tuscan Raiders changing him ends up falling flat, as it is difficult to see how Lord Fett is any different from the character shown in Episode 1. He's different from the character shown in the movies. That's the point. We didn't see him as this type of person, as the 2D fucking sketch he was in those movies where he had four lines of dialogue. He never saw his face. He didn't know what he looks like, where he's from, what he's doing this for. You don't know anything about him. So this idea that, oh, you know, it's, how do we know? It's difficult to see how he's any different. He's entirely different to what we expected him to be, and that's the point. In the moment where you thought, is he in it for himself? Is, you know, is he in business for himself here? Is he going to flee the camp on his own? He actually shows you an interesting side. The show showed us an unexpected moment of humanity when he turned to the other guy and was like, oh, do you want me to save you? I'll save you. Because he thinks the Tuscans are the threat. Oh, oh, my God. Bobber offering to save the other guy isn't a betrayal of that theme that they were building and trying to tell. It's foreshadowing. Nathaniel, inexplicably, he goes on. The Boba Fett of the series is an entirely different character to the Fett of the original trilogy and expanded universe material. Again, we knew nothing about Boba in the original trilogy. Nothing. And the expanded universe material was discarded 10 years ago. It was cast out of canon and into quote-unquote legends so that the series like this and continuing episodes and the like wouldn't be tethered to like heaps of tedious, uninteresting nonsense which was bordering on fan service and was largely shit because it was never going to be anything. Like, like some of the Thrawn stuff was pretty cool back in the day. That was interesting. A little bit of the Luke and, you know, Mara Jade stuff was sort of okay. Um, like, there wasn't a great deal of it that they should have kept. And I don't think they could have picked and chewed, oh, we're going to keep this, we're going to keep that. That's not canon. That is canon. Just get rid of it all and give yourself the blank slate. So, again, talk some sense, mate. And he finishes off by saying, yet... If the series had initially presented him as the ruthless killer he used to be, his eventual change following his time with the Tuscan Raider tribe could have been far more impactful. What? The ruthless killer he used to be? We'd never seen him kill anyone. In those in episode five and six, who did he kill? Oh, what? Uh, what? 
the small episode we saw in episode one of Book of Boba Fett was impactful because it immediately teased that he wasn't the guy that we had him fingered as. And he has been shown to be ruthless. He murdered Bib Fortuna in the post credit scene of Mando Season 2. He beat up the biker gang in the bar. Then he later killed that biker gang. He you know, flew over them in the Slave 1 and just ruthlessly gunned them down. So this idea that, oh, you know, he could have been more impactful if he was a certain way that oh, he actually wasn't the way that I'm talking about in the movies anyway. Shut up, Nathaniel, seriously. And then lastly, there's one in um, an article in The Hollywood Reporter which sort of held a similar view, saying that four episodes in, the book of Boba Fett has continued to refocus, or sorry, focus on recreated style over substance. And again, I think that's kind of selling it short, like that's disregarding it so it's done no character work. That's sort of like throwing out the idea that it's done nothing to reposition the character of Boba Fett and our perspective and interpretation of him. It's done an enormous amount to do that. Yeah, elements that have been slow moving, episodes like tonight have diverted too far from the plot, but to carry on as though, oh, four episodes in, it's just, it's, it's just focused entirely on style. It's told us an enormous amount about a character that I, I cannot say this often enough. We knew nothing about we knew nothing about who he was. We last saw him as a 10-year-old boy, and then he was in a brief bit of uh, Clone Wars, uh, you know, he was a little bit older than that, and then we saw him saying four lines of dialogue in two movies. That was it. So I think just people are really quick. It's this age of, maybe it's a consequence of episodic TV returning in that what Netflix and other streaming platforms have done is kind of recondition audiences to just Stranger Thing comes out in one hit. You can watch the whole show in an afternoon. Is that good? Is that bad? Who's to say? But what it does make people is impatient if you go to an episodic weekly format, which a lot of these networks are going back to because they obviously want to retain, you know, they want to retain viewers. The idea is that this show stops and then what's the next one? Like Obi-Wan comes out in like May, I think. Um, so the idea being that, well, this ends in Feb and then there'll be another show to keep you subscribed. We don't just want to dump the whole season in a day so that, okay, I'll sign up for one month and then I'll rejoin later in three months when there's a new show I want. No, 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 we'll drip, here, we'll drip feed you. Just stay, stay subscribed. That's why they do it. But the consequence of that is that people can't see the bigger picture. You know, and you've got people using the word you know, sympathetic as if to say that the character's soft when you know, my reading of it is, is actually more nuanced. I might have said it last week. Like what they're doing, don't but at least consider this presentation to be more interesting than the alternative, which would have been so painfully obvious for them to do that it would be uninspired. It would have been the most obvious thing in the world for them to just do this guy as these writers have complained he isn't. You would have been like, yeah, that's what I expected him to be. Yeah, okay. You know, I've always thought with Star Wars, one of the best examples of people misreading a character, and it's just, it's going to make me chuckle for a long time, is the classic Han Solo moment. So the very first scene that Han Solo is in, in A New Hope, is when you know Luke and Obi-Wan are obviously trying to get passage off Tatooine to go to Alderaan, and he's fleecing them. And he's, he's acting a bit aloof, and he's acting a bit cocky, and look, it's going to cost you. Jeez, oh, you've got some attention here where you're trying to get to, blah, blah, blah. And he's trying to play it as straight as he possibly can. He's trying to be as difficult as he possibly can, whatnot. And then he ends up getting the big payday. And as soon as they leave... He just drops that act and goes, oh, my God. He's like, we've fleeced him. Fucking how good's this? Fuck, this is this. It's going to save my neck. It's all been an act. The cocky, arrogant, sure of himself. He was none of that. Because as soon as they walked out the door, 
he was like, oh, this is magnificent. How good is this? This is a great result. You know, go get the ship ready. Let's go. So there was a great moment in that solo movie too where, which speaks to that, where Kira says to him, um, I'm the only person who knows who you really are. And he kind of like tries to remain calm and confident, kind of chuckles, you know, what's that? And she says, the good guy. Because he's, he's not the hard the hard bastard that he pretends he is. He's the big softy. The film has explicitly told us that, the way that he's acting, but everyone goes, oh, what a, what a bad ass. You're like, no, he's flying by the seat of his pants. And then further, it actually speaks to a theory I've had um, since Iron Man 3, that audiences don't like being surprised. They rationalise that any surprise, even if it's well executed and creative, is a betrayal of whatever their expectations were. They aren't able to enjoy the film, the album, the TV show uh, that has been made. Instead, they focus on the show they expected having not been made. They've envisaged the character or the story being one way, so that's the only way he could be, and anything other than that is a fail. Like, it's incredibly short-sighted, and I used Iron Man 3 as an example because I've always thought the twist in that film is genius. The twist that, you know, it's this genuinely searing satire and commentary on the influence of fear. The Mandarin is posited as this Bin Laden-like, West-hating, bile-spewing terrorist. But it's just a concoction filmed on a green screen and filmed on a soundstage. But he still accomplishes everything that an actual terrorist would. The reactions, the fear, the panic, the paranoia. That's real. And that's the all that needs to be real. And it's this really clever, really brilliant, like, we've been had. What? It's fantastic. But a lot of people didn't like it. Because he wasn't what was in the trailer. He wasn't what the trailer told him he was going told them he was going to be. And I think that's what we've got with Boba Fett, with a lot of these people having played make-believes in their head that he's a particular way inclined and this is how he is and this is how he's got to be, he's got to be this. And he's not. But that doesn't mean it's not interesting. That doesn't mean that this presentation of the character isn't good. I would argue that I would rather him be this way than the other way. Which, I mean... Once again, without seeing the show, it's impossible. That show, it's impossible to know how good or otherwise it would have been. But would it have been as, as interesting? Oh, I'd argue no. Uh, so now, having said all that, this episode wasn't a great way to repay my faith. I had written that, obviously, in the lead-up to this week's episode, uh, not knowing that it was going to be uh, Bobber, you know, Sans Bobber, or Sans the plot we've been telling to this point. So... A lot of the things or some of the things that those writers were talking about are correct and have merit in the aftermath of 45 minutes of storytelling um, two-thirds of the way through a season that ultimately doesn't really drive the plot the plot they've been telling forward. Um, it's actually a bit Age of Ultron-style padding to kind of set up another story being told in another series at the expense of the story you're trying to tell here and now. It might serve the former, but how much does it really serve the latter, Joss Whedon? You know, sort of spoken about his frustrations with Ultron in that way. Um, and I think actually John Favreau spoke about his frustrations, which is funny, uh, with Iron Man 2. It, it, it wasn't so much an Iron Man movie, and Age of Ultron wasn't so much an Avengers movie as it was setting up other things. Iron Man 2 was ultimately setting up and laying the groundwork for the um, grain groundwork and framework for the Avengers, and Age of Ultron was ultimately setting up and laying the framework for. Um, you know, the quote, Infinity Saga and what would obviously culminate with Endgame. These are narratively important to do, 
but there's always a film that suffers as a result. Even Ant-Man and the Wasp did a bit of heavy lifting to set up sort of the idea of the quantum realm and what would be the payoff for Endgame, but kind of at the expense of its own movie. It was sort of a sacrificial lamb in that way. Um, so I do feel for you know, directors or storytellers who have got this foisted upon them and just have to deal with it as best they possibly can. In so much, you know, those Marvel films, there was only so much they could do to avoid that. They kind of had to do a lot of that expositional heavy lifting. A show like this or a universe like this with a platform like Disney+, Plus, no, they don't just do your own standalone episode. Just have a standalone special with which puts Jinjar and you know doing this stuff and telling heaps of exposition, which is really cool about Mandalore, which we'll speak about in a moment. But just have it be a standalone thing, a kind of 2.5, season 2.5, or a special, you know, Christmas episode or whatever the like might be, that then positions him in such a way that if they need him to come into Boba Fett, he can, because he's in the right place at the right time to do that. But don't yeah, don't sidetrack a show called The Book of Boba Fett with, you know, like 45 minutes worth of stuff about this guy. Like, it just seems like a strange decision for them to make and ultimately is one that I think will, will cause a lot of interesting chatter. Um, we'll go into the chicken salads. The opening, I did like that. I was critical uh, of the cold open of the Season 2 episode of The Mandalorian entitled The Jedi, which introduced Ahsoka Tano. I reasoned that it was a really cool concept, but it was just poorly done. This idea of we're going to, in this case, introduce Ahsoka Tano into live action. And it's a cool scene where she's this is force running through the, the forest away from her and, you know, the lights and people screaming, you know, the, sorry, the, the, um, the flash from the lightsabers and the like. There's a lot of cool stuff to be played with and work with there. But they just give us a look at her like four seconds into the episode. There's no tension or build up or the hood comes off and fuck, it's Ahsoka. Which was just strange. It was a re- weird way to kind of take the air out of everything. This sequence, however, with Din Djarin, we've obviously seen him quite recently, so we don't need to do the big reveal, but I, I did like the idea. He, he was executed a bit better as his reintroduction, the cool kind of silhouette, um, as you know, shown that, oh, we know who that is based on his silhouette, which was fun. He goes to collect a bounty. Um, you know, the action is better directed. I will say he kind of, he did, he killed the bad guy, like his goons. And you're like, okay, that's fine. We're, we're fighting here, I suppose. But he just brutally killed the bad guy. You're like, oh, Jesus. You know, I know he said his line, I can bring you in warm or I can bring you in cold. Um, but, yeah, there was, it was just sort of, I don't know, I found it a bit strange that he was just like, he was just so brutal about it, which was, yeah, it was interesting. But he obviously had the Darksaber, which was cool, that came out, that got a, a bit of a mark for that, I always get a buzz out of that. Uh, but I just liked it as an inciting incident to kind of get this, the show and this episode underway with a bit of momentum, like it's, it's sort of rolling in gear already, it is good. Um, and I kind of, I kind of liked that it dropped us in, and he was part way through a mission, or just tidying up the end of whatever his current bounty was. A bit, you know, James Bond like in that way. That's the reason James Bond films start the way they do because it's, it's almost like perceived momentum. Is the film starts and we feel like we're behind and we need to catch up. Uh, but so it's a really clever framing device. I'm actually surprised that more comic book films don't do this. A lot of them, you know, some of them do, of course, but drop us in at the end of a mission. Age of Ultron did it, uh, obviously, which I mentioned before. They had the the Avengers attacking um, Strucker's castle, and it kind of felt like the full stop on the period between films as, as what have they been doing between this one and the last one. It was a really, it was a cool kind of way to 
as I said, get the show going. Um, the highlight of the episode without question was the Mandalorian lore. So centred around, obviously, the Darksaber, but just greater ex- um, exploration of that really interesting sort of corner of the Star Wars mythology. Um, any lore about the Darksaber and Border Mandalorian, uh, Mandal- uh, Mandalore is just really cool. It's really cool to know more about it. The question, of course, lingering over this conversation is, do we need that right now, at this point in time, in this show? Yeah, probably not. It's great to have and we do need it. I do love it. Do we need it right now? Yeah. Ultimately, when you make a show called The Mandalorian, you have to talk about the Darksaber. You have to talk about Bo-Katan Kreese. You have to talk about you know, Death Watch. You have to talk about Clan Vizsla, you know, Tar Vizsla, Pre Vizsla. You have to talk about The Purge. So what they did really cool here, which what I liked, was a bit more about the Darksaber. Um, it was really interesting and, and intriguing world building. Um, more stuff about Mandalorian lore, as I mentioned. I like the idea of when he was wielding the dark saber and kind of, you know, part training with it. Um, the foundling that was saying, um, "You're fighting against the blade." It's sort of weight. It's sort of unruly. It's difficult to command. It's sort of, a, it's a unique weapon. It's almost as though it has its own agency. It's almost as though it answers to and responds to he or she, whoever is worthy. Sort of Excalibur with a conscience. So it's, it's that cool kind of idea that it takes practice is the most basic way of saying it, but it takes familiarity. It takes um, a true Mandalorian to kind of be able to wield it um, expertly, efficiently, which I sort of quite liked. It was a little bit Lord of the Ringsy as well. The idea of the blade kind of answering to or responding to you know, its rightful owner, kind of thing, or the, the person who has earned it. Um, I like that Bo-Katan got some love as well, got a mention, which was cool, uh, as did the backstory of The Purge. It's all great stuff. It's all heading towards her own show, uh, certainly greater appearances in live action. Uh, she obviously wasn't cited in this episode, but she is a really important character um, in this particular broader story, uh, of course, played by Katie Sackhoff in both live action and uh, she was voiced by Katie Sackhoff as well. Um, what was cool as well was to see The Purge, it was the first we've seen of it in live action. It was important to get a look at that because it is a seminal moment that gets the Mandalorians from where they were when we last saw them in stuff like Clone Wars and, and Rebels, um, particularly Clone Wars, obviously, and, and gets them to this point when there's so few of them and they're in isolation and, and exile and the like. It's a really important defining moment um, sort of in the galaxy for that sort of snapshot of you know, 20, 30-odd years that these stories are largely taking place in. Um, so it was, it, was, it was really great to see that. Um, Mandalore being bombed, you know, back to the Stone Age and its people wiped out. Um, there was obviously a mention of the Moon of Concordia, um, which people will be familiar with who have watched uh, Clone Wars and the like, once governed by Pre Vizsla. Um, and the founding they mentioned, had they not been on the Moon, had the sect not been on the Moon of Concordia, they wouldn't have survived. Um, so that was cool. That was a nice little name drop. Um, I did find it funny at one point when you know Dinjar and he, he goes and collects the bounty and goes to get the information he needs to find the foundlings. Has he skirmished there? He still doesn't have a ship, so he's catching like an intergalactic bus. He goes to the bus terminal and it's he has to check his weapons and all that kind of stuff. And it's like I still don't have a ship, so I'm just catching public transport around the galaxy. He goes to Tatooine uh, and comes across Pelimoto, of course, played by Amy Sedaris, who's been seen in both seasons of The Mandalorian. Um, so that's how it was good to see her make the move along with Din Djarin from series to series. 
and it's revealed that he's got a new ship. The Razor Crest, of course, was put out of action um, by the Dark Troopers from memory. They destroyed it in the first episode that reintroduced Boba Fett, um, and he spent a little bit of time getting around in the Slave One as a passenger. Um, a cool moment again, I spoke about silhouettes, you know, with terms of revealing um, Dinjarin at the start of the, the episode. Um, one of my favourite moments from a trailer last year was the Flash trailer where it's revealed that um, we're in the Batcave, obviously, and you get the silhouette of Keaton's Batmobile, you know, under the big cloth, and you kind of go, it is cool when something is familiar enough or iconic enough that, that you recognise it by the lines and the shape. Um, so he goes there and uh, Pelly has, has hooked him up with a new ship and it turns out to be a derelict uh, N1 Naboo Starfighter, which of course was the, the ship of the Naboo Royal Guard as seen in Episode 1. And then how that evolves and is repurposed is really good fun. It's, it's kind of like a hot rod. It's got a big engine block on the front. They've souped it up. Um, interestingly, the chrome paint job where they kind of stripped back any of the yellow that was traditionally on the ship actually reminded me very much of you know the uh, the Iron Man Mark II suit, which was all chrome before he you know painted it at the start of the movie, um, which is obviously in itself a nod to his armor and the old Razor Quest. Uh, it's got a bit of yellow on it, but not a not a huge amount. Um, but I just liked it because it's a beautiful ship. If anyone's watched any of the bonus material and supplementary material from the um, the Star Wars prequels, particularly with Episode One, Doug Chang, there's a little webisode episode that talks about the creation of this ship and the design of this ship and the design language and the design philosophy behind it. So Doug Chang, you know, was brilliant artist, and it's just fantastic design. It's the idea was that these ships, who they belong to, are obviously a reflection of that culture. And that design language and philosophy is a reflection of that culture. So they're handcrafted. They're almost like a Rolls Royce. And the design aesthetic tells you so much about the place that they come from and who uses them, while also being a really, really fascinating sort of commentary inverse of the military-industrial complex produced X-Wings and TIE Fighters, which would obviously replace it. They have the intermediary, you know, when the the Jedi Starfighters become really um, boxy and wedgy, and they start to drift closer to what we know from the original trilogy. They speak about that in a few of those doc- uh, docos as well. Um, and it's also more speaking about the idea too that, you know, cars in the 70s and 80s were very much like that. They were very, very, bo- very you know, lines, angles, you know, straight lines. Whereas 30 years before it, they were quite beautiful and sweeping and they were this wonderful expression of design and the times and the like. So that was what was cool. I said seeing this ship... Um, just reminded me of all that, which I, I do love. I love it all to death. Um, uh, Pelly mentions that the ship is pre-Empire, so it's off the grid. It can't be tracked. Some cool little information there, which will come in handy. It did later on. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how they make it practical for his needs. It's obviously a single, uh, single-seater, so there won't be too much transporting of bounties in it. He might start killing more people. Um, the sequence where he got pulled over by the space cops, one of, uh, one of which was uh, Carson Teva, the bearded X-Wing pilot we've seen in Mandalorian. I didn't so much like it at that particular sequence. I didn't, didn't really go for it so much. I don't know, but it was what it was. And then a couple of odds and end notes from those particular that particular sequence in the Starfighter. Um, Pelly asks him, how was it when he, he takes it for a test flight and he brings it back and he says it was wizard. Uh, so justice for Kitster there. Um, and episode one, that's been a bit of a bugbear for a while. I'm sure we'll see memes in the next 
day or two, Mean Girls style, stop trying to make Wizard happen. That's not going to happen. Uh, but I thought it was a laugh. I thought it was quite good, and it showed that uh, Favreau kind of gets it and knows when to drop in that those references and that humour. And the actual test sequence was cool as well. It, it looked, and again, I'm sure people do side-by-sides, but it looked a bit like he went out to the old um, uh, podcast circuit from episode one, uh, the Bunta Eve, uh, I believe it was called, sort of podcast circuit, and there were a couple of little visual nods to you know locations from that race track, which was nice. Um, I like some of the movie references. Now, I could be reading way, way too much into it, but there was a fair bit of this week's episode that reminded me of other things, in a good way, like the interesting Halo-style ring was a bit Interstellar-like as well, the, you know, the, the base at the end of Interstellar, which was that big sort of ring, which had, an, had a strange kind of perspective to those who lived on it, um, but it was very, very Halo-y, even in, when they went into the under, underbelly somewhat, and they had the big open shots of like the catwalks looking out into the expanse. Um, Palomotti's skirmish at her little hangar with the creature uh, had a moment that was very Jurassic Park-like. Um, I'm not sure if it was a li- deliberate callback, but Bryce Dallas Howard, of course, uh, is an alumni of the Jurassic Park series, having appeared in uh, the Jurassic World films. Um, the bit where she kind of she's trying to get this droid and this creature comes and snatches the droid and she's sort of trying to get it back uh, and she ends up being knocked over by it and kind of clinging, you know, at a horizontal, clinging to this... Um, the frame of this ledge or something and it's a bit like uh, my immediate reaction was that's you know from the first Jurassic Park where they're unloading the Raptor and the infamous you know shooter and the guys hanging onto the side of the the box they're transporting in it was a bit of funny just a nice little nod there um during the glimpse of the purge of Mandalore it was cool to see the K2 units on the ground but that was very Terminator future warlike, particularly the T2 flashbacks with the sort of the apocalypse kind of sequences and a lot of the future war stuff in general, but it was very Terminator-y, which was fun. Um, and then in the sequence where they're piloting or he's piloting the uh, Naboo Starfighter through the canyon around the race course, it actually looked a bit, it, was, it reminded me it was a bit end- Independence day when uh, Will Smith's Steve Hiller is uh, piloting his way through the, the canyon um, once the aliens have sort of laid waste to the uh, the U.S. Air Force, and they have that one-on-one dogfight through the canyon, it was a bit like that. It's one of my favourite scenes from a movie of that era. So again, I'm not saying it was a deliberate shout out or a direct shout out to that, but it just reminded me of that. Um, as for the chicken shits, nothing really about what was on the screen, to be honest, was bad or so bad it was offensive. It was just more about why this is on the screen now. And why have we devoted 45 minutes of storytelling to it when there's only two episodes left? Like, Devil's Advocate, is it a necessary diversion? As interesting as it was, again, they're taking the show away from its main character and or the driving elements of the plot. They did that a lot in Mando, and it kind of got a bit... It's, it's not annoying as such, because it's still very watchable, and it's still executed in a fun way. But you watch a show like this, you watch these overarching... Um, narrative, you know, storylines to follow that narrative. If you don't want to do it that way, just do standalone episodes where he's getting a bounty, that that kind of thing. If you want to tell an overarching seasonal story, you, you can't jump away from that story for 45 minutes when you've only got two episodes left after it. So, you know, that that's... Not a concern as such, but it's just you sort of going, okay, well, how are we going to all tie this together now? Because this was a pretty crucial episode to build 
and then build next week, consolidate that build, and then you do the big blow-off payoff in the last episode of the series. Are they in a position to do that now? Yeah, look, it'll happen one way or another, but will it happen at a pace that's kind of like, you know, satisfactory given all the build-up they've done to this point? So I don't know if them getting sidetracked is ultimately good for them. Um, some odds and ends. There was a nice nod from uh, Sedaris's Palimoto. She said uh, regarding the Pikes, ever since they've been moving Spice through this system, everything's gone to hell. So it was a little bit of a callback, obviously, to her lived experience on the ground of what's going on since they've been a bit more brazen with what they're trying to do. Uh, the Meat Packers at the start had the Bulldog-like creatures whose makeup was it was okay, but it was a little bit shonky. It was a little bit... You know, yeah, this is a TV show, isn't it? They all kind of looked a bit like Who's from, you know, from um, from The Grinch, which probably wasn't the uh, the aim. Um, there was a mention, obviously, uh, Dinjarin talking about Moff Gideon. He beat, beat him to take control of the Darksaber. He was sent off to the New Republic for questioning. Um, they mentioned he'll be executed. That was just an interesting little throwback. I wonder if they'll revisit that in any way. Later on, they might just confirm what has or hasn't happened to Moff Gideon at some point in time. Obviously, Grogu gets a mention. Din's missing him. Um, he takes the spear, the Beskar spear, which he is told by the foundlings is actually a contradiction of Mandalorian law uh, as a weapon. Um, and he, he basically says, OK, then, um, smelt it down and reconstitute it as something else, as armour, as a gift you know, to a foundling. Um, and that is Grogu. So he asks her to uh, forge him something which we don't see, which is a gift for Grogu, which will be revealed at some point in time. Um, so it'll be interesting and intriguing to see what that is. It kind of it, it was hard to kind of get a look at what it was. It was quite small. Um, initially, I thought, oh, maybe it'll be a hilt, like a lightsaber hilt or, or the like, but it'll be interesting to see what that ultimately comes to. Smarter people than me who have watch these shows absolutely inside and out, might have a guess as to what the gift is. They've probably already figured it out now. The episode only aired, what, an hour ago? Um, and then the little sequence where the sort of West Coast custom style Pimp My Ride-inspired rebuilding of the ship um, was quite fun as well. I didn't mind that, and they're putting it all together in a bit of Star Wars tech space jargon and fun little droids that we haven't haven't seen in the past. And um, I I'd, I'd sort of like that sequence, to be honest, Um Part of just putting the ship back together as well, and they got the Jawas involved to get them missing parts. Um, yeah, I just thought it was well done. Thought it was sort of was well realised and 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 put together in a fun way. Uh, overall, um, I firmly believe that the content of episode five of this series was worth telling, but not here. As its own standalone episode, standalone special, plugged in wherever they want in between series. Um, you know, wherever they need it to go, perfect, perfect. But as a divergence from the story that we've invested in and want to see told, it looked not great. So as a Mandalorian episode, which it is, I'll give it a B. It was a pretty solid episode. Um, maybe even more than that, maybe like an A-, minus, to be honest, as an episode of that show. As an episode of The Book of Boba Fett, like it's probably like a D-, minus. Because but for the end, where he meets up with Fennec Shand and Shand basically invites him to join um, Boba's crew, we actually didn't get any forward momentum for this story. So, interesting. Well done in parts, but frustrating at the same time. Um, thanks very much for listening into this particular review episode. Uh, it was a fun one to put together. It was an interesting one put together. 
I kind of diverged from the, the plot myself with that rant about um, some of the critical responses. So I'm art imitating life, life imitating art. Um, but let me know what you're thinking of the season. Let me know what you thought of today's episode, episode five, Return of the Mandalorian. Let me know where you think it's all heading to. Let me know if you've kept the faith. I'm always interested to hear from people who are enjoying the show or have some musings and feelings on the show, so please do always get in touch. So for me, Sean Peterbudge, until next week, until episode six, this is the way. We'll see you next time.